We began our conversation in the bonus room by talking about the brass band movement in England and end with Mark's involvement in endurance sports, including his participation in the Marathon de Sables, a six-day event with the equivalent of five marathons in the Sahara Desert. Tell me about brass bands, because for me, growing up in Los Angeles, and I could say probably the United States, way back when, there were no brass bands. And now there are some brass bands, but there's certainly not nearly as many as you would find in England. And there's certainly not a culture like you have in England. And so I don't know if, if you can sort of even explain the whole, I, I don't know, yeah. what would you call it? Yeah, well, I'm not a brass band historian by any means. Um, but uh, certainly when I started playing, uh, I think I said there's brass bands in every village. And they were ba basically sprung up in working class communities, really. Many of them were attached to mining communities, especially in the north of England. I mean, from where I'm from in Cornwall, that was also a mining community, but uh, the mines were closed way before I was born. Um, but certainly, where, you know, in the 80s, there, you know, the, the Grimethorpe Colliery Band, there's a Carlton Main Frickley Colliery Band. There are also bands, uh, the Black Dyke Mills Band was attached to a textile mill. And so they were, they were basically sort of promotional vehicles for industry really uh the bands became very famous in this you know certainly the top bands were very famous they got the support from the uh company bosses because of their success that i think sort of brought up this competition competition that they call them contests um it's almost become well it has taken over the whole brass band uh sort of mentality really there are there used to be two main contests a year the national finals held at the royal albert hall and the british open finals held in manchester uh, initially but now in birmingham uh now there there's a european championships which involves european bands but the, the the most of the focus of these bands is to either qualifying for these competitions and and or winning them and uh the positives of the, that is that the the pieces that are either commissioned or transcribed for these uh, contests are incredibly challenging and ever and ever more challenging uh, some of the technique that's required is absolutely incredible and so it has stretched the technical limits of the bands but the negatives of it is that it, you know basically it becomes a very insular sort of occupation if you like there have been several people in my lifetime who have tried to break that obsession with contests I mean the first one that in my lifetime was Elgar Howarth he took over the Grimethorpe Colliery Band and started commissioning pieces from Harrison Birtwistle and uh, getting them to play at the proms and, and that sort of thing, um, composing pieces himself. Uh, then the next along was Howard Snell, um, who, you know, uh, expanded the repertoire with his own transcriptions and got the bands playing in a, in a little bit more symphonic manner. And then, of course, James Watson uh, was incredibly influential at Black Dyke, again, getting them to invite it to prestigious festivals and things like that. But despite those individuals' efforts, the bands have always sort of gravitated back to the contests um, as their main uh, source of interest and, and sort of motivation, if you like. I think it's a bit of a shame. I think there's never a better period, never a better time, really, for um, especially with the um, music education being taken such a hit, there's never a better time for a community... Uh, music making medium to make massive uh you know strides in in music moving things forward 
but per, in my personal view, it really depends on them um, getting away from this contesting mentality. And maybe without, we've not had any contests now for 12 months, maybe even longer. Maybe the fact that there haven't been any will um, encourage bands to look a little bit wider for their musical motivation. But yeah, that remains to be seen, really. One thing that seems interesting to me, and maybe I'm a little bit misled on this, but my impression is that all of these brass bands are amateur, and yet the level is incredibly high with some of the playing. Um, that was certainly the case when I was coming up through the movement, although that you know some players were paid retainers, and certainly the Grimethorpe Colliery Band, uh, the band were all employed by the mine, but hardly any of them went down the mine. I mean, you know, they were almost paid to be bandsmen. Um, but now things have changed. I mean, now there are dedicated um, degrees uh, in brass band studies at, in, uh, at the Royal Northern College of Music and the Birmingham School of Music, Royal Birmingham Conservatoire, I should say, and in Wales also. And they are, uh, you know, there are players coming out there um, with with a wider experience of music and going back into the bands and so you know many of them earn their living from music either playing or performing uh and so there are i'm pretty sure there are people uh you know professional musicians in brass bands now quite a significant number um having said that that it's that you know it still seems a little to me inward looking rather than outward looking the movement in 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 a way yeah well i think also as and and correct me if I'm wrong, because I could very well be wrong. But as opposed to, let's say, orchestras, orchestras are playing Beethoven and Mahler, and you even get to some modern composers who are recognized as really top modern composers. Brass bands, I guess they have commissioned some now top modern composers, but it's still maybe a little bit of a different mentality, that, that the substance is more like, I'm I'm going out on a ledge here, so I'm probably wrong. So jump on me. But it's it's more about maybe technique and perfection rather than um, philosophy, shall we say? Well, of course, that's. Uh, I mean, there have been some uh, amazing composers who've written for a brass band: Elgar, John Ireland, Herbert Howells. Um, it's just to name th- three. Uh, and then more recently, people like Judith Bingham have written pieces. Um, so, uh, what well, and I, I mentioned Harrison Birtwistle. Um, so th- it's not that there isn't music available, but it's generally that, I mean, the pieces written by Elgar, for instance, would, uh, are not considered difficult enough to warrant, um, inclusion in the contests for most bands. And so, you know, that, that it's no longer played. Um, so it, it is this, this, um, focus on technical difficulties, certainly, which is, you know, which drives most of the pieces written for contests. Um, right. So that is a main is a major drawback, I think, uh, that there is so much fantastic music which might not be technically difficult in terms of uh, running around the instrument or articulation, but actually demands much greater musical understanding and maybe blend of sound, change of tone color, and things like that, which uh, are, are, are not really getting their due attention. Right. Right. Well, it's coming to the United States. I mean, there are a number of brass bands now in the United States, so it will be very interesting to see how it develops. And I know, uh, having lived in Scandinavia a little bit, uh, that there are brass bands in Scandinavia and that it's very popular there. Well, so. my, my favorite band, actually, to listen to is from um, Norway now. Uh, uh, you know, Eikanger Band, which is... Uh, I've got a, a, actually a 
previous students just contacted me a couple of days ago is now playing is moved to Norway is now playing there uh, but certainly when I listen to that band right next to the very finest British brass bands for my taste uh, this Norwegian band has a much more I hesitate, hesitate to use the word symphonic because, because again, brass bands see that as negative, but a very much more um, balanced view on or a wider variety of tonal colour, a wider variety of articulatory um, tools that they can use. And um, also, I think psychologically, that band seems incredibly strong. Whenever you see them on stage, everybody seems happy. Everybody, regardless of the of the occasion or the you know how important it is in terms of competition, that band always seem to be having fun. And uh, how they've managed to do that into or cultivate that ethos, I mean, that is gold dust. If if um, if they could quantify it, yeah, that sounds great. That sounds great. Well, there's one other thing that you do that, that very few trumpet players do, and that is that you're into endurance sports. Um, and I'd like to talk about that a little bit, but first I'd like to ask if you think that helps with your playing, because when I think of some of the iconic trumpet players of years past, Adolf Herseth and Maurice Andre, I don't think they did endurance sports. They, they look like they enjoyed life maybe a little bit too much to do that. So, so do you think that actually helps your playing in terms of breathing or strength or whatever? When I was at school, I was a very keen rugby player. I mean, I said that uh, brass bands were a religion. Well, rugby is also a religion in Cornwall. And we had a very successful rugby team. And uh, basically, we were, you know, county champions. And I I played for the county Cornwall uh, rugby at schoolboy level. And then it got to a stage where, where I thought, right, I want to be a trumpet player and throwing my self at the knobbly needs of a marauding forward is not probably not great for my chops. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I very suddenly decided, right, I'm going to stop playing uh, rugby, that is. Mm-hmm. And I announced to the school that I, you know, that I wasn't going to play anymore. And um, they went rather crazy. Um, the, the, the head of rugby had me up against the wall, uh, pinned me up against the wall and growled at me. Why have you decided to give up living? Literally, and, um, he had you against the wall? Yeah, ex- yeah, literally. And uh, I said, I haven't, sir. I've just decided to give up rugby. And he said, it's the same <laughs> thing. <laughs> so, and then uh, the, I was summoned to the headmaster, the principal of the school, um, and asked why I, did, you know, I wasn't going to play rugby for school anymore. And I tried to explain, which I thought was quite a reasonable reason. And he said, well, if you're not going to represent the school at rugby, you're going to we're going to ban you from all sports. You can't take part in any sporting activity at all. You're kidding. That That's amazing that they can yeah. do something like that. So what that uh, what that meant was that any time any sport was going on, I was in the music block practicing. So it didn't it wasn't entirely lost. But what that did mean was that I mean, from going from somebody really active to somebody doing nothing as a schoolboy, I put on stacks of weight. You know, um, became quite chubby, and. Um, uh, of course, when I went away to college and had to start cooking for myself, uh, that soon <laughs> sort of dropped off. <laughs> but um, but uh, it wasn't until I went to the Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra where I started running, really. And, um, and it happened because I came home and started complaining about being unhappy with how I was playing and all that sort of thing. Um, oh, this isn't working, that isn't working. And my wife said to me, well, you haven't been for a run for a while. And I rather irritatingly snapped back. Well, what's that got to do with it? And she said, well, you're always complaining about your trumpet playing when you haven't been running. And so I thought, oh. Well, that's really interesting. 
so I I started uh, I think okay well maybe this is something I ought to do and soon realised that for me I mean, I, you know, some of the things that people say about me, some people say I'm intense, some people say I'm driven. These are the adjectives that I've heard people apply to me. And I think as somebody who's quite sort of, um, what's the word, with a high revving engine, <laughs> um, <laughs> that the physical release of tension, I think, uh, does help me. Generally, I play I play best when I'm in a relaxed physically relaxed a state of mind and i'm most physically relaxed when i've beasted myself um out on the running track or or you know around the fields and the mountains um it's a strange sort of feeling that you know i I could be physically exhausted but but basically in in a really nice sort of frame of mind and it's a nice exhaustion for playing the trumpet in my Mm -hmm. experience yeah i mean there are really really good and bad ways to to be tired or to be exhausted uh, but certainly, I find it uh, a, a fantastic uh, physical tension releaser, uh, physical exercise, if, if done in the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's how it started. And then when I joined the Philharmonia, we had these long residences abroad, um, places like Paris with lovely food and wine. And again, without, unless I went for a run, I, I just found myself putting weight on again. So it started off as a sort of weight control thing. And then the more I got into it, uh, that it started veering away from health benefits into performance benefits. And then you get to this you know, point where um, the health benefits are, are outweighed sometimes by the potential damage you can do to yourself. <laughs> um, but and I certainly got to that stage a few times um, because you know as I got more into it I started doing triathlons and then started with little sprint ones and then Olympic distance and then up to Ironman and then I was looking for something else and then doing ultra marathons you know so it, it became a sort of uh, again a sort of driven process where I, I was constantly looking to push the barriers of what I could do then a while ago let's face it my personal best days are over i think um but uh and so i started having having a slightly different frame of mind about it about again getting back to exercising for health enjoying the environment enjoying the hills enjoying the mountains but there again only 18 months ago i decided to enter a marathon and again that the sort of driven side of me again started to, to ask okay exactly how fast can i do this and um it all started again really <laughs> Are you familiar with Rich Roll? Does that name ring a bell? I've listened to a couple of his podcasts. Okay, yes. okay, yeah. I read his book and I've I've listened to some of the podcasts. And you probably know his story that you know he was really hung up on alcohol and drugs for a long time, and finally, I think he was in rehab for a hundred days or something like that, and and then basically sort of got his life together, but felt like he was having a heart attack one night when he was forty, and then decided he was going to be vegan and ended up, you know, doing all these incredible ultra, you know, uh, feats. Um, and, and you did, and, and it, it basically changed his life for the, for the best. And it sounds like what you're doing has changed your life for the best, but you did one thing that was really extreme, which I think was, was it 11 days in the desert? No, it wasn't quite that long. It's uh, an event called the Marathon des Sables, um, which, um, they call it they sort of bill it as the toughest foot race on earth it's not it's um um yeah it's quite tough in it, certainly if if the weather is very hot the year i did it it was actually one of the cooler years um but it was still yeah it was uh i think it's um the equivalent of five marathons in six days 
Wow. In, okay. In the in the Sahara, the stages start. You've got a couple of days where you do thirty thirty k, thirty five k, or something like that. Um, uh, and then they have something called the long day, which is more or less um, a double marathon plus. But you've got you can either do it in one day or you can take two days, in which case you lose your rest day. And then it finishes with the official marathon stage and then which is marathon distance. And then there's generally a sort of processional 5K or 10K into the finish line at the end of the week. It was an amazing event. I loved every minute of it, actually. It wasn't so much the running, but you're, you're putting these sort of basic Berber tents with eight other people or actually eight people in total. Um, and the year I did it, I had a great bunch of tent mates who I'd never, obviously never met before, but we all got on really, really well, supported each other. Um, and um, it was just great to be, you know, waking up in the desert under starry skies, uh, running all day <laughs> and doing the same again. It was it was just a great escape, if you like. How hot was it? As I say, the year that I did it, it was not one of the hotter uh, uh, years, but it was still sort of in the 40 degrees C. I mean, sometimes it can get up to 50 degrees C. I um, really? So that, that's actually... <laughs> that's quite hot yeah boy i have great respect for that because i've done a couple of marathons and triathlons but i was always a back of the packer and never very good and to do something like that is wow uh well uh, likewise i mean i don't claim to uh, certainly um i'm never at the front I, i'm saying generally i'm in the top 25 percent of most fields or i was but certainly i'm never i was never what somebody uh, you know who's going to be on the podium um it was always about how you know how much can I get out of myself than 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 anything else, really? Yeah, yeah. Well, when you're let's say in in the past, you're training for let's say a marathon. Okay, so not like an extreme extreme, but just normal extreme uh, race. How how would you work that into your daily planning? I mean, um, are you if you if you're described as being intense and driven, you must be really good with your time management. So how how like what would a normal day be in terms of like teaching and if you had a rehearsal and training and all that kind of stuff. And also, do you have a special diet? I mean, you talked about being in, in Paris and so you, it sounds like you had some wine and, you know, whatever. Mm. Um, I don't have a special diet. I, I mean, I, I'm fortunate that generally my preferred foods are the food are generally healthy foods. So, mm -hmm. I, you know, um, generally we, we, de we don't eat, you know, particularly unhealthily. Uh, so th that, 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 but I don't follow any particular vegan or you know mm -hmm. anything other any other diet really um in terms of scheduling i i do schedule it i schedule my exercise just like i would a meeting or a, a lesson um and it you know i look at my schedule a, a week ahead and i think okay where are the windows where i can schedule this um these these exercise sessions uh and that's the only way i can do it really do you get up like really early in the morning are you a really early riser or I'm not, uh, I do if I have to. I mean, if, when I, because um, basically I live 150 miles away from London. So when I'm teaching at the academy in normal times, I obviously can't make that trip every day. So I would stay down two or three nights. And I, uh, the, where I stay in London in digs is um, basically about, uh, I think it's about 12 kilometers away from the academy. So uh, generally I would run to and fro the academy if i was in training for a marathon that would be uh, you know two nice easy runs one one might be a medium pace one might be really slow pace or 
I might incorporate some, you know, intervals between traffic lights or something on the way in and then slow on the way back. Um, I, and also maybe sometimes uh, in my lunch hour, uh, I would run in my lunch hour in the park. There's, we're, we're back onto Regent's Park at, at the Academy. And could you take a shower after you ran? Or have Yes, it... yeah, there, there are showers because we have a musical theatre department. So there are showers okay, dotted, okay. dotted through the Academy. So, yeah, I wouldn't want to uh, do it otherwise. <laughs> uh-huh. So, yeah, it is a case of planning it. Uh, I I have to admit, I'm... I used to find it much easier when I was in the Philharmonia because, you know, you would have half a day off at a time. You'd mm-hmm. either have a, an afternoon rehearsal, evening concert, or sometimes a morning rehearsal, afternoon off, evening concert. And so having that big chunk of time to do my exercise, I preferred to this, um, what, what I have these days. But, uh, you know, you just have to adapt, don't you? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, like with marathons, did you have a favourite swimming, biking, running, a favourite discipline? Uh, I was strongest running. That was my uh, and next strongest um, on the bike, and my swimming was always, yeah. The th- the swimming was what stopped me being p- competitive in my age group. Really, I mean, I think if I'd been competitive at swimming, I might have actually managed to get to Hawaii. Really, um, but the, you know the age group championships. But uh, without without being a decent swimmer, you're always paying catch up. Yeah, there was a uh, long time ago the the sort of the three main top triathlon people were Scott Tinley, uh, Scott yep. Molina, and and um, Dave Scott. And Scott yep. Tinley could never basically keep up with the other two. I mean, he kept up with them, but it was swimming just killed him. You know, he just wasn't strong on the swimming. Are you familiar with the book about um, Mark Allen and Dave Scott's head-to-head in Kona? No, I mean, I've seen videos of that. And I think it was, uh, uh, even though, I think it was, what was it? The, like in the last couple of, of uh, miles, Dave's it was a no I think it was Mark Allen's wife or Dave Scott's wife I think Dave Scott's wife came running beside him with their baby or something like that and and they were running neck to neck and Mark Allen said something like that's not fair <laughs> yeah it's, it's an incredible book actually it's um, a great insight into somebody again somebody actually pushing themselves to the uh, ultimate limit yeah to me that's really inspiring you know because I think there's there's so much more that we can do you know that we just don't we give up too early yeah yeah. Do you know? Do you know this David Goggins book? Somebody gave that to me just recently. Yeah, I, I did. I've, I've read it and I, f- I follow him on Instagram and things like that. It, it, it's quite quite inspirational. Pretty hardcore. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'd say. Uh-huh. Again, you know, um, very much in the John Wilbraham school. <laughs> <laughs> With the use of language. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you know, um, again, his way or the highway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean. To be, to be honest, he's not preaching anything other than stoicism, is he, really? Well, anything you'd like to, to add? Um, this has really been fun. Yeah, um, I don't think so, really. I, I mean, um, I, I, I've no idea whether it's interesting to anybody else, but, I mean, um, I always have great fun talking to you. Yeah, ditto. <laughs> um, no, I don't think there's uh, anything, really, that uh, we haven't covered. We've covered uh, playing the trumpet, teaching the trumpet, running. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The three essentials, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks so much, Mark. I, I really appreciate it. It's great having you on. My pleasure, Tony, and it's great to see you. <laughs>